0: So... Jesus. He's far and away the most provocative, influential, controversial figure in human history, and at the same time, arguably the most misunderstood. Here's what I mean. On one hand, he's the founding figure of the world's largest religion, Christianity—close to two and a half billion people and counting. And on the other hand, because all the diverse and often contrary ways he's understood can't all be right, by definition, then, on any given day, Jesus is misunderstood by a whole lot of people in one way or another—sometimes pretty dramatically. Jesus's mission, for example, his project, is routinely misconstrued. I mean, just a moment ago, I said that Jesus is known first and foremost as the founding figure of Christianity, right? And yet, if we read the Gospels carefully, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing that comes through is that Jesus isn't interested in founding a new religion. That's not what he's up to in these stories. He's a Jew, interested in a kind of renewal, a reinvigoration, but not some newfangled alternative, not a new religion. They ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't come up with a shiny new rule. He quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He's not starting a new religion. And yet, that's how most of us think of him today. The most basic so-called fact about him, the starting point for understanding him, is itself a kind of misunderstanding. His followers end up founding a new religion, that's true, but Jesus, no, that's not his thing. We think of him as breaking away from Judaism, when in fact, that's not his mission at all. And the misunderstandings just pile up from there. Part of what's going on is a dynamic that goes like this. Because of Jesus' prestige, because he's so widely admired, people are constantly trying to push and pull and twist and distort and insist that he supports their cause or campaign or empire or issue. And this propaganda creates a kind of distortion field all around him with people invoking him and his authority and his standing in the name of things. I mean, sometimes it's things that he didn't say anything about. And that dynamic stirs up all kinds of confusion. Somehow, this peasant rabbi, this healer who wants nothing to do with empire, who was killed by an empire, somehow he becomes a figurehead for imperial colonialism. I mean, how does that happen? Or again, there are Christians today who are sincerely convinced that Jesus is all about getting people to believe certain things about him, and on that basis, getting a ticket into heaven after they die. When in fact, the New Testament could hardly be more clear, Jesus comes preaching not a gospel of going up to heaven, but a gospel of heaven coming down to earth. I mean, when it comes to Jesus, there's a funhouse mirror behind every corner. There's so much distortion, so much topsy-turvy, upside-down, downside-up. And then, as if all that weren't enough, there's at least one other contributing factor. Jesus, it turns out, sometimes doesn't want to be understood. Not in a simple sense, anyway— He often teaches with a style designed to draw us in and make us think. He often will tell a story or a parable or give a cryptic answer that can be taken in more than one way. As the Gospels tell it, Jesus' disciples misunderstand him constantly. And we do too. And then we circle back and we listen to him again and wrestle it out. At times, it seems as though this is what he wants. It's this relationship that he wants, this wrestling, this grappling. And so, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential figure in human history and the most misunderstood, even among his followers. I mean, it comes up again and again. It's the question nearly everyone who meets him ends up asking Who is this guy? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this who heals and teaches and feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and a couple of fish? Even Jesus asks, he, he asks Peter directly, right in the middle of Mark's gospel, he says, Who do people say that I am? And just like today, they're all over the map. Peter lays it out. He says, Some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah or one of the other ancient prophets. And Jesus, hearing this, he doesn't respond. He doesn't clarify or or set the record straight. He just looks at Peter, looks right at him. You know what that's like. You're, You're talking to somebody about something, some general topic, and then all of a sudden you realize that the house lights have gone dark and the spotlight has fallen on you You know, Jesus is looking at Peter, but he might as well be looking at each one of us, at you or at me. And he says, Well, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part one of our six-part series on understanding Jesus, the most provocative, influential, and misunderstood figure in human history. And we're going to start with that famous question. It's a kind of pivot point, a crossroads. Mark places the question almost exactly in the middle of the story he wants to tell— There are 16 chapters in Mark, and we've spent these first eight chapters listening to Mark tell us about how Jesus has been healing and teaching and feeding and confronting and wrestling with death-dealing forces. And now, for the last eight chapters of the story, we're going to listen to Mark tell us about Jesus's passion, the road to the cross, the plot and the betrayal and the suffering and the death and the empty tomb. And right here in the middle... Between these two halves of the story is this question, this crossroads. As if to say, all right, you've heard about the healing and the teaching and the feeding and all the rest, and now we're about to head down into the valley of the shadow of death. So, this is it. What do you think, Jesus says. Who do you say that I am? Peter gives an interesting answer. He doesn't hesitate. He says, you are the Messiah. And then, all hell breaks loose. To understand why, let's take a step back. In the ancient world, in many Jewish circles, there were those who waited expectantly for a Messiah, a great deliverer. The Greek word here is Christos, or Christ, literally the Anointed One, a title typically given to a king. And for many, and quite understandably, the deliverance people were hoping and expecting would arrive was deliverance from bondage, the defeat of the Roman imperial occupation, the liberation of Israel. The Messiah would come in glory as a monarch and a military conqueror, routing the Romans and restoring the throne to the rightful line. Of King David. Is this violent, glorious vision of the Messiah what Peter has in mind? Based on what happens next, yes, it is. But first, before we get to that, Peter and Jesus and the other disciples and the crowds are walking together on the road to Caesarea Philippi, a city about 200 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Caesarea. Philippi. You can hear the word Caesar in the name, Caesarea Philippi. These Roman settlements were near a temple built by Herod the Great. Herod was a practicing Jew who ruled Judea as the client king for the Roman Empire. And this temple at Caesarea Philippi, when Herod built it, he dedicated it to Rome, and in particular, to the Emperor Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And a man, please note, who added to his official title the phrase, Divi Filius, Son of God. So fond was Augustus of this title, Son of God, that he had it stamped with his image on Roman coins, which of course were everywhere throughout the empire. And here was Jesus and his disciples and a crowd in tow, all approaching the temple to Augustus, Jesus the one Mark introduces at the very beginning of his story, chapter 1, verse 1, as the Son of God. Now, as the group approached Caesarea Philippi, the tension, the atmosphere, must have been electric. Imagine it from Peter's point of view. Walking the road toward that temple to the supposed Son of God, the Emperor Augustus, built and dedicated by that traitor Herod, and walking that road with The Messiah, the one who has finally come to right the wrongs and deliver Israel from bondage to freedom and glory and restore the Davidic throne. I mean, this is it. Caesar is going down. The Son of God, the true Son of God, has at last arrived. But Peter, poor Peter, he scarcely gets the word Messiah out of his mouth before Jesus flips the script entirely, much to Peter's dismay. Yes, we're headed toward Caesarea Philippi, but we're not marching as conquerors. because he sees something in Peter's eyes or hears something in the tone of his voice when he says, you are the Messiah, or perhaps because this particular itinerary, this approach to the temple of empire is the perfect setting, the perfect moment to do it. Jesus introduces his most difficult, most disturbing teaching of all. It's so difficult, so counterintuitive, that he'll repeat it three times. Here in Mark 8, and then again in Mark 9, and then again in Mark 10. The teaching is this. Jesus must undergo great suffering and be rejected and killed, and then in three days, rise again. Needless to say, Peter... Is devastated. This is not what he was hoping for. In fact, it sounds to him pretty much like the opposite of the Messiah, the glorious military victor. And so Peter has the audacity to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. How dare you speak of such indignity, such desecration, suffering, and rejection, and death? No, that's not why we're all here following you. And then Jesus, well, he gives as good as he gets. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. You're pushing me in the opposite direction from the way I now must travel. We can only imagine. Peter is beside himself. He's upset, he's confused. He doesn't understand. And the disciples and the crowds are standing there looking on, mouths open, stunned. They don't understand either. And then, without missing a beat, as if this teaching session is exactly what he had in mind all along, Jesus calls all of them together, Peter and the other disciples and the crowds. This is something he wants everyone to hear, including us as if to say, listen, all of you. Right here, right now, in view of the Temple of Empire, we've reached a crossroads. Anyone who thinks this journey is a violent campaign, a movement of domination and triumph, well, you can turn back now. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. That's not what true deliverance is about. I know for many of you I began all of this by calling you to follow me. But now we come to the place of confronting what following me really means. We're not headed to conquer the temple at Caesarea Philippi. No. We're headed to Jerusalem to Golgotha, to the cross. In a sense, a deep sense, to follow me is to take up a cross of your own, to let go of all self-centered grasping, all will to power and domination, all the ways of Caesar, and to suffer for the sake of the gospel of love and justice. Not to court suffering, not to seek it out. No, there's enough suffering in the world as it is, but to be willing for the way ahead includes suffering. It's as if Jesus says, Let me tell you a great mystery. Deep down in creation, there's a physics more profound than the surface of things, the superficial layer in which everything appears to be driven by might and violence and grasping and domination. Underneath all that is a deeper physics. What's truly important is driven by love and humility and generosity. On the surface, these things may appear weak and fragile, but they're not weak. They're strong. They're the strongest things In the world, to live in accordance with this deeper physics means you will suffer. And it also means you will rise. The logic of domination, of violence, of self-centered grasping, of trying to save your own life, in the end, it only results in losing your life like sand through your fingers. And the logic of humility of generosity, of losing your life for the sake of love and justice, results in saving your life. This is the great mystery, the hidden physics of creation. I know it doesn't always look that way on the surface, Jesus says, but I'm not talking about the surface of things. I'm talking about the truth of things. We're going to walk down into Caesarea Philippi not on a war horse, but on foot, unarmed, with empty, open hands. And we'll keep walking all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, that ultimate weapon of imperial terror, and then beyond it to the empty tomb, and then beyond that to a new community based not on domination, but on gentleness and justice and the deep physics of kindness that make the world turn. That's where we're going. That's where the way of love will take us. If you want to come, then take up your cross and let's go. Follow me. But have no illusions. The journey will not be a triumphant march. It will include suffering as all movements of love, kindness, and justice do. It will have its share of crosses and more than its share of resurrection and new life. The temptation here is to think that today we are just bystanders to all this, that since the Roman Empire is long gone, we aren't implicated in the story. But of course, the ways of empire, with its countless temples, are everywhere. As are the deeper physics of love and justice. We're always at the crossroads, really. Always about to descend that dusty road into the city. Practically every moment, we face this elemental choice to follow or turn back. In everything we do, every interaction we have, we can seek to dominate or vanquish, or we can seek to build each other up, to build the world up. We can close our hands into fists, grasping at nothing, losing our lives like sand through our fingers, or we can open our hands in confidence and strength, in other words, in faith, gracefully, gratefully receiving the gifts of God. According to the Gospel of Mark, is Jesus the Messiah, the anointed, that ancient title for a king? He is, but he's a king who subverts the very idea of kingship, A deliverer who means to save us from our own self-centered obsession with our own deliverance. And a teacher who introduces us to the deeper physics of gracious, courageous, neighborly love. Want to save your life, Jesus says? Lose it. That is, turn away from over-focusing on saving your life. And turn toward your neighbors, even toward your enemies in strong forms of love and generosity, knowing that some suffering will come along the way, and that ongoing resurrection and new life will too. Understanding Jesus begins here, at the crossroads. The crossroads is the place where we pick up our crosses, never courting suffering, never prolonging suffering, but proactively, intentionally taking up the suffering that will inevitably come our way. And at the same time, the crossroads is the place of decision. What will we choose? To go back and remain in the ways of Caesar, that counterfeit son of God, or to follow Jesus forward on a journey of transformation for us and for the world? In the next episode, we'll take another step along the way, exploring what Jesus means when he calls each one of us, not only to suffering and new life, but also to beauty and greatness. Ready? Here we go. strange new world is a salt project production written and produced by me matthew meyer bolton with help from elizabeth meyer bolton and gretchen summers music is by pablo j garman and blue dot sessions if you like what you hear spread the word and give us a review on apple podcasts it really does help people find us and drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening and see you next time